This is Purple Radio On Demand. Hello, I'm Ariel and welcome to, welcome back to, Pulling Back the Canvas. Uh, This is where I just have a chat about some art and the stories that are being portrayed by art or are told through art. You know, we just we just talk about art. Let's keep it keep it simple, shall we? Um, <laughs> it's been a long couple of weeks. Uh, my brain is uh, pretty tired, and I'm still knee deep in assignments. So I thought I'd have a chat about something that's a bit easier, well, on my brain at least. I think I'm still in <laughs> the frame of mind as last episode. Um like, you know, social, political change. Because <laughs> for some reason, um, I've decided to talk about the French Revolution this week. Um, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily sound like something that's going to be easy on the brain, but for some reason it it, it is, uh, at least for me. <laughs> so yeah, here we are. It's going to be pretty crash course, pretty general. We're kind of looking at the vibes, and the vibes aren't great. It's going to be the same sort of format as the Medusa Week as well. Sort of the story, and then how that story of the French Revolution is told through art and art movements. So it's a bit cheating, in the sense that usually I look at a piece of art and then look at the story it's depicting. We're zhuzhing things up. We like a good zhuzh. Settle in, and we're going to transport ourselves to 18th and 19th century France. Yeah. Cup of tea, brioche, coffee maybe, coffee's more like it. Coffee, brioche, croissant. Let's get into it. This is a time of major social and political change, as you may or may not know. Um, Lots of revolutions going on in this time all over sort of specifically the western world at the moment um the monarchy in france for pretty much its whole history from about like you know ninth century then consistently through to the 18th century and then it's a bit on and off as we'll see until the late 19th century and after that the republic properly set in We're going to start with the 18th century state of things, and I'm going to have a look at this through Rococo art, um, specifically through The Swing by Jean-Honoré Fragonard. Um, I'm not going to bother with a French accent because I think it would just be rude. I think it would just be offensive to French people. Um, (laughs) So Rococo art... Uh, it's indulgent, it's elaborate, really quite highly detailed, ornate, silly, frilly, light colours. It's its own little world of frilly art. And the swing, uh, it was painted in 1767, is the culmination of all of this. The scene in, in the swing is a woman on a swing. Uh, there's a man behind her, like, swinging it, and then there's a man lying in front on a bush, looking up her skirt. <laughs> um, there's a lot of 
lushness going on. There's uh, trees all around the scene that are really full. It's very indulgent. And it's very light and silly, as we said about Rococo art. Um, the woman's wearing this massive peach dress that's just overwhelmed with bows and frills. And she's sticking her leg out so her stockings can be seen. Very scandalous. Uh, another bow on the top of them. And she's kicking her little peach shoe off. And then the, the man is directly below her with a clear view of this frilly skirt. Other little details are sort of, um, she's smiling. Honestly, can't tell if she's actually constipated because it is a weird smile. Uh, <laughs> there's also a tiny, ridiculous looking dog that's um, really fluffy in the bottom right, looking at her too, which I almost didn't catch, but I uh, zoomed in and it's there. It just doesn't look real. And there's a few sort of neoclassical details. So, statuary that might match an ancient Mediterranean art theme. So there's like cherubims and other details like that in the statuary around this sort of garden scene. And it's a really good reflection of the French elite at the time. They're sort of fluffy, indulged in their own little world. Yes, it's a beautiful piece of art, but some might think it's sort of and it's sort of oppressive, and it's sort of unreal to the wider population. It's very frivolous, which I really like that word. You can just imagine a, a French peasant like looking at this and thinking, "Oh for God's sake, I can't, eat, I can't get any bread." And uh, you're looking at this woman's skirt like it's uh, the best thing since sliced bread. So yeah, reflection of the French monarchy and aristocracy. Um, the monarchy at the time controlled spending, and the estate general collect, uh, controlled taxing. Now, the estate general was basically an assembly of three different social groups in France, and this assembly hadn't been called since 1614, uh, and uh, finances are going down the toilet at this point in time. Uh, the painting is 1767, so this is about the time when France was funding the American Revolution. Also, a bunch of crop issues, so bread is proper pricey. Um, prisoner 24601 Jean Valjean is quaking. Um, so, this uh, estate general was called in 1789. So, that's a long period of time that this group hasn't been. Called. That's over a hundred years of not sort of checking up on each other. So the formation of it is the first group, the first estate is the clergy, the second estate is the nobility, and the third estate are just the commoners. And that there isn't an equal distribution of people to represent their respective groups. For example, the first two estates, the clergy and the nobility, are actually 5% of the population, reflect 5% of the population, and then the third reflect 95% of the population, so it's not really equally distributed. Um, plus, the first and the second estates were exempt from tax, so they're all sort of buddy-buddy and happily outvote the third estate of commoners. 
And even then, the third estate was mostly made up of local officials, businessmen, landowners. So it's not really an accurate reflection of the commoners themselves, who were probably largely um, just peasants, um, basically, to put it bluntly. So the estate general gets called in 1789. Uh, everyone gets together at Versailles. Um, there's a statement there in, in that it's being held in the monarchical realm. Um, and everyone goes to their separate rooms because they all have separate meetings. The, all the estates don't actually get together in the same room. They all make their decisions separately, which isn't a very community way of doing things. But, you know, that's their decision. Then one guy gets thinking at this estate general. Always a dangerous thing, thinking. And he's a priest from the third estate. So that's the estate. And he argues that because the third estate was the majority of the population, 95%, that they should have more say and not be continually outvoted by these other two estates. And better yet, let's just combine everyone. Why are we all sitting in separate rooms? The guy's name is Abbe Sier, I think. I, uh, my, we all know my pronunciation is never the best. And he manages to create a splinter group during this estate general called the National Assembly, which is mostly made up of the third estate and a handful of people from the first. Uh, so that's the clergy, so religious group. Um, and then they all troop over to the Versailles tennis court. And then they said they're not moving until there's a new constitution. So some more people from the first and second estates joined them. And then finally, the king, Louis XVI at the time, gave up in opposing them. Louis, however, then makes the decision to fire and banish uh, his finance minister, Jacques Necker, on the 11th of July, 1789, which leads, which leads to a fear and anger from the general Paris population because this finance minister was pretty cool with the Third Estate, and there was also a fear of the royal troops who'd been called back to France and to Paris would then prevent the National Assembly from meeting up. Everyone's getting a bit het up, tensions are high, especially at the show of military power from the monarchy. Chaos ensues, rioting, grabbing supplies, etc. And it all culminates in the storming of the Bastille on July 14th, 1789. You know, I'm sure the monarchy was thinking, how am I going to be an optimist about that? I had to do a Bastille reference. I had to. So a bunch of gunpowder had been stored in the Bastille. There was also a handful of prisoners. Lots of killing. Lots of angry, panicked citizens. It's a whole ordeal. But after this, the ancient regime, um, so basically the whole historical institution of monarchy, as the French knew it, was then picked apart and dissolved. And then the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen were promoted, and feudalism was also abolished. Uh, feudalism, feudalism was a system that meant landowners answered to the nobility and were taxed for the nobility. At this point, the uh, payments and taxes that went to the church also ended. Change was pretty slow going, though, and uh, the, the common class was not getting a lot of answers. Obviously, they can't really know what's going on behind closed doors. It is calmed down for a bit, 
and there was the First Republic, but a whole bunch of death. Um, most importantly, uh, Louis the Sixteenth was executed on charge of conspiracy against public liberty and general safety. Um, I think there was a war at some point. I don't know. Europe is a whole mess. Um, and uh, people are just at each other's throats. I did say this is going to be very general. Um, crash course. Not much detail. Because uh, <laughs> I'm tired. Um, we've got the reign of terror next. That is the name of the period. Sounds really cheery to me. And I want to briefly mention a different piece of art. This isn't one of our main ones, but it is a pretty key one that also tells the story of revolution and just absolute sort of um, discord going on in, in France. And that's the death of Marat by Jacques-Louis David um, that was painted in 1793. And it sort of reflects how... The Republic wasn't doing it for many people. There was uh, the the Republic was also clamping down on any whiff of dissent or counter revolution. And one of these counter revolutionaries was Jean Paul Marat. He was killed by a woman who was part of the current regime called Charlotte Corday, and she snuck her way in and stabbed him. Didn't even run away. She she was just standing there. Um, accepting of, of her assassination. Uh, she was tried and executed. But the scene in the painting is that death. Um, Marat is in his bathtub. He had to. He took lots of baths because of his skin condition. Um, but it's possible that the painter, David, um, who was best mates with this guy, found him like that. Um, he also embellishes the painting with some symbolism, such as a letter he's writing in one hand with the name of his killer. And the whole thing is pretty grim, like he's visibly bleeding in his bathtub. And some have likened his head lolling uh, to one side um, to be a pose similar to Caravaggio's depiction of Christ. Um, he's the Baroque Medusa guy that we mentioned last episode. So it's this idea of a Christian martyr. Um, in the story of revolution and um, wanting change and things like that. The monarchy then kind of dips in and out. Um, Napoleon becomes emperor of the French in 1804 uh, until 1814, and then he's exiled, and Louis the 18th becomes king for like less than a year, but he's not really counted apparently. Um, there's other stuff with Napoleon. <laughs> I don't have the mental strength to get into all that now. Um, he's got a lot going on himself. So I'm going to focus back on the reflection of the history within art because I have gone on a bit of a historical tangent. Um, and I'm going to come to probably one of the most famous French paintings, which is Liberty Leading the People by Eugène Delacroix, uh, which was painted in 1830. So we're going to dive into the July Revolution of 1830. It's also known as the Three Glorious Days. Um, the French were pretty proud of this, it seems. The monarchy was still persisting after this revolution, but the aristocracy had been brought down a peg by it. So leading up to Jul the July Revolution, um, Charles X was now king, 
And he really fancied going back to, you know, the good old days of feudalism and commoners being properly um, poor. Um, we want the nobility to be noble again. It didn't really turn out to be very popular with the people. Shock horror. Um, and on July 26th, he introduced his July ordinances, which included a bunch of censorship, getting rid of the Chamber of Deputies, which was set up as a challenge to the uh, monarchy. And also it would bar the middle class from attending elections. So it really didn't go down well. The Parisians were pretty, you know, paid off. Um, and businesses closed their factories. The workers at those factories were already themselves peed off because their wages were inadequate. So they were like up for a protest. Everyone was pretty riled up. Meanwhile, the aristocracy were in the I do not see it mode. Um, I mean, if you don't believe a revolution won't occur, it won't, right? Like, if I can't see you, you can't see me. <laughs> um, then introducing the three glorious days. There's fighting, rioting, Jean Valjean waving his bread and Eddie Redmayne probably crying over some empty chairs and empty tables. I don't know, I only, I only watched the movie once. Um, it is actually a bit early for the events of Les Miserables, um, but I just feel like I need to make as many references to it as possible. It wouldn't be French Revolution without it. Um, Charlie Boy, uh, Charles X, the king, has run away at this point it's it's a little bit scary things are blowing up in his face um and louis philippe is crowned king the following month so some people kind of see this july 8, uh, 1830 revolution as a little bit unsuccessful um because the monarchy still remains but it's still a big old time of discontent so this painting liberty leading the people is the culmination of all this discontent extending from our first painting, uh, The Swing, all that time of the eight, uh, 1789 revolution, um, discontent following that, and this culmination of the July revolution. Um, the painting itself falls into the Romantic neoclassical movements, which followed the Rococo. Uh, so this is a time of, you know, romanticising everything, making things seem grander and glorifying things. The use of these styles is fairly ironic. Um, if you think back to the last episode, if you listen to it, um, we had those um, ancient Mediterranean pieces of art and history uh, as something that is associated with an elite class and their own art and architecture. So it's not something you'd really associate with the revolution of the lower class. Um, but neoclassicalism was a movement that opposed the ideals of Rococo. Um, so in that sense, it was a reaction to this free, um, elaborate, in their own world, upper class. And they wanted uh, an art movement that had a bit more integrity to it. It's more refined. The neoclassical movement was a way to be more analytical and slightly more realistic. And then the romantic movement went from that as a way to oppose the sort of harsh industrial reality of the world. If you're thinking 1830, we're industrial revolution in the Western world, um, and they wanted to go back with back to 
thinking about past stories and iconography like the ancient Mediterranean world and themes from it like Greek mythology, Roman mythology, all about passion, feeling, nature, romanticizing life and not the true reality of the world. So this idea of liberty leading the people is all about freedoms of expression, passion of revolution and things like that. Um, and there is that energy in the painting. There's use of some bright colour in the French flag, but ultimately it is glorifying the events of the July Revolution. Um, liberty is the central woman leading everyone. The classical theme is of, like the ancient Mediterranean kind of art is through her her being bare-breasted and wearing a Phrygian cap, which is symbolic of freedom and things like that. She's wielding a gun and a flag. She's not pretty or goddess-like. She's the revolution. Um, you've got the middle and lower classes in there too. There's um, So this is an arming against the ruling class. They're trampling over dead bodies. Of There's soldiers in there representing, you know, quashing monarchy's army and there's also an aristocrat figure amongst the dead lacking any kind of dignity so this is a, a statement and a half so we get this culmination of half a century of social discord within this dirty manic angry powerful scene um and it's a complete juxtaposition or opposite from our previous artwork of the swing it's also interesting um, comparing the two women, because both of them are the centre of attention and are commanding the scene. But, you know, their flushed cheeks mean very different things. Um, in the swing, the sort of little flush blush going on is because of playful aristocratic flirting. Whilst in the second one, that flush is because she's been running through a battlefield and leading a revolution against that aristocracy that you see in the other painting. Um, both of their bodies are also the major subject of the painting, um, but the woman on the swing is being sexualised, um, her skirt is flying up, it's naughty, it's playful, while there's nothing sexual about Liberty's nudity, she's mid-battle, there's bigger things to worry about than her being bare-breasted. If anything, it's a, a bit scary, it's going back to classical themes, ancient Mediterranean art, and nudity in that art um, was a sign of heroism. So yeah, we've got our pre-revolution and we've got our sort of mid to end revolution. Things stay tense in history. There's another revolution, the one that's in Les Mis in 1848. The monarchy stays until, you know, about 1870, uh, when there's a third republic um, and that's instituted. I've breezed across a whole load of history, um, but that's that's my choice. <laughs> I think it would take so much longer to go into proper detail. Um, but we're now in the realism movement of art, and it, it's what it says on the tin, you know. It's a focus on the accurate representation of things. There's no allegory, there's no metaphorical depiction of things like liberty leading the people, like that's not something that actually happened. Um, it's just scenes of people and things and nature. Um, realists, you know, wanted to paint things as they are. Um, even things that would seem, you know, plain, normal, or even ugly, or 
even boring. Um, you might look at a painting of, I don't know, two people talking, um, and you just think, oh, this is a bit boring. But that was the whole point. It was just real life. And looking at these three main movements that we've gone through, uh, Rococo, Romantic, and then Realism, the three R's, amazing. That wasn't planned. The three R's, Rococo, Romantic, and realis Realism. <gasps> Wait, no, there's a fourth R because it's all to do with revolution. Wow, the three main art movements of revolution, the four R's. <laughs> but in these four R's, you can see the development of what artists want to focus on. And it's always very based on a reaction to what came before. So Rococo was, you know, disgustingly opulent, love it, um, playful and things like that, because the Baroque movement was pretty dark and serious. Still opulent, but a little darker. And then Romantic, the Romantic movement was influenced by neoclassical um, art because Rococo was too fluffy and also because the real world kind of sucked. So let's make it all seem dramatic and metaphorical and really grander than it seemed. And then Realism looked at everything before it and was like, this: all this art movement that has come before us it's too elaborate and we just want to paint real people in real life. Realism is the last movement I wanted to talk about regarding the French Revolution um, because of the social and political ideas um, going on and the change in what people were focusing on um, because it was this idea of letting normal, common people be depicted in art. Um, going away from this idea of the swing and these aristocrats having, you know, a fun time in their own little world. Um, not getting bogged down by that aristocratic artwork and letting depictions and, and depictions of grand and mythological things. So the painting that I've chosen to represent this is The Gleaners by Jean-Francois Millet in 1857. And you've got three women in a field, all peasants, gleaning wheat from this field after it's been harvested. And gleaning is when you go over a field picking up any leftovers of a crop that's been harvested. It's a way for a poor population or individual to sustain themselves during a period of food insecurity. And it was a right that actually extended from a biblical rule. It's still going on today. Um, there's volunteers going to farms to collect up leftover crops and donate them to food banks. There was an example in 2010 where 3.6 million pounds weight, American statistic, of fruit and veg um, was recovered in New York State. So it's not anything to be sniffed at. But a lot of people did sniff at it because it was a sign of poverty because people didn't have the means to provide for themselves and they gleaned instead. Um, this sort of sure sign of poverty also wasn't an appropriate subject for art, um, according to, you know, this 19th century world. And especially such a massive piece of art. It was, um, I don't I remember the exact dimensions now, but it was a large canvas and there was sort of 
uh, these sort of art critics are thinking, who wants to see a bunch of peasants on a canvas whose size was, you know, appropriate for biblical art or mythological art? Um, so these upper classes were immediately suspicious at the true message of the painting, because, you know, it's less than 10 years um, after the last major revolution. And I think it's just funny that there was there had been so much social discord that as soon as a lower class was depicted in labour, they assume it's an attack on the upper class. The painting is also a good um, a good one for our collection of three main paintings depicting, you know, the social change and political change through French Revolution, as we again have women depicted. Um, except this time, they're not aristocratic women being cheeky and fluffing up their huge peach skirts to let a man get a peek under it, and neither are they romanticised as bare-breast commoners leading a revolution against an upper class. They're just peasant women. You know, their faces are obscured from direct view, they're hunched over in their layers of clothes, bonnets on, just collecting up, remaining available food to just carry on another day. So we've got three very different, well, yeah, three different movements, all sort of leading on from each other, evolving into one another, all relevant to telling the story of the French Revolution and the political and social change that came with it. You go from a ar very aristocratic um, art movement of the Rococo where you'd have to be wealthy to have that kind of grandeur and elaborate art, and then into the Romantic movement that was still, whilst not as fluffy and indulgent as Rococo, still sort of metaphorical and aggrandizing things, and then into realism where it's just people doing everyday things. Um, and it's it follows this sort of social change and focusing on letting ninety five percent of the population have a voice um, and the common common population having a voice. So that's I've talked way more about this than I thought I would. Um, obviously, <laughs> I got my brain working in the end, but uh, I f I find that something really interesting. Um, to look at because um, art is almost almost always a reflection of what's going on in history and whilst maybe not telling a direct story um, like the swing um, it, it, it does sort of tell a broader story of what's going on in history um, if that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. As always, I got my research from online. The the Wikipedia page for the French Revolution is so long. Um, great if you want just to mindlessly scroll through a lot of information. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's all it's all there if you want any further. You know clarification because I did just breeze through a lot of history. Um, so yeah, I hope you enjoyed hearing about it. Uh, 
it was it was a fun one to research and just sort of um zone out and collect all this information i hope you i hope you stay safe and as happy as you can be until our next see you i'm ariel and this has been pulling back the canvas purple radio podcasts Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.